today's guest is an exceptionally versatile theater artist known as a playwright, a director, and an organizational visionary. His plays include The Colored Museum and Spunk. He wrote the books for and directed the musicals Jelly's Last Jam and The Wild Party, and he directed the original Angels in America, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, Top Dog, Underdog, and most recently, John Guare's A Free Man of Color. For more than a decade, he was the artistic director of New York's Public Theater. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theater Wing, and I am very pleased to meet George C. Wolf. Hello, hello. Free Man of Color yeah. is a project that you lived with for a long time. Well, when I was the producer of The Public... Um, I think we were coming up on some anniversaries, probably the 30th or the 40th or the 50th. I remember, I don't remember which. And we wanted to re-engage artists who used to be part of the public theater family, i.e. writers. And so, um, and so John worked there many years in the, in throughout the seventies and the in early eighties, I guess. Um, and then he hadn't been there for a while. And so I had always wanted to do this sort of, uh, restoration smash up in, Taking the plots from Country Wife and Way of the World and The Rivals and mixing them together, and I'd also and I'd also wanted to set a restoration play in the New World. Probably I was thinking either Charleston or New Orleans, and the Louisiana Purchase always fascinated me because you had with New Orleans you had a city that was of French and Spanish rule and had very different sexual, racial, cultural, behavioral rules, and then, which were non. Puritanical, and what happens when you impose all of a sudden the United States structure on top of that? What survives and what doesn't? And so I talked to John about that, and then he went off for two years and worked and came back with this sort of five-hour play called A Free Man of Color. It's interesting to me. We so often hear about theaters commissioning works, and they say to a playwright, we're interested in working with you. Will you give us a play? You actually had all of these ideas and said to John, would you like to work on something that like, looks like this? Exa- yeah, sort of. Yeah, basically that's what it is because I, I knew I wanted to do – because I had always wanted to do a restoration comedy and I thought I'd do it in the park. And uh, and and I and also was – I mean I had an ongoing I – mean, every, every, almost like every 10 years I do something about New Orleans. I have no idea. Past life or something. Who the hell knows? And uh, restoration comedies, they have at the core of them sex. They have at the core of them the property. They have at the core of them seduction and it's wonderful language and it's – Foolish, wonderful characters all conniving to get one thing that they want. And I thought this would be fabulous. And I thought, well, it would be great to set them in, in a city where you could explore all the cultural and racial complexities of that. So like I saw Charleston, New Orleans, and I said, no, no, because there's no place like New Orleans. And so and so I told them all, all about this, and I thought about that, that the dynamic of, of the Louisiana Purchase, because the thing which was interesting is – is as in the play, Napoleon was going to use uh, New Orleans as a beachhead, and he was then going to conquer North America. But because of what happened in Haiti and his defeat there, that's what caused him to make the decision to sell it. And all of a sudden, it transformed this country. And so all those dynamics were really interesting to me, storytelling-wise and history-wise, and I thought it would be fun to set it in a frothy world. And then... So five hours. He comes back with a five-hour play, and we should say, what, about... 30 plus characters? Yeah, and we we did a reading of it in the Shiva Theater at the Public and it was monumental and it was Jeffrey did the reading, most Steph was in the reading and a bunch of other people, I'm not sure how many of them are still in the production if any of them. And it was just this wild, extraordinary, entirely too long, but incredible event. And and so that was that. And then um 
And then he started working on it, working with a woman named Celise Kalki, who was part of the play development department at the public at the time, working on cutting and fixing and changing and whatever. And he'd go off and he'd come back periodically. And I think at one point I joined the project as the director, but for the longest time my primary relationship was as a producer interested in doing this work. And then I got tied up in doing other projects and then I said, okay, I can set aside this amount of time. And then we were supposed to do it at the public, I guess. A fall a year ago or something like that. But but let's say this project dates back to when you were running the public Absolutely, and yeah. it was not finished no, seven years ago. This yeah. is seven, the first – I think we had our conversation about it seven years ago. Wow. And then he came back, you know, you know mm-hmm. two years later and then, and then it, it's gone on its own journey. Needless to say, we did a workshop. It didn't happen at the public for various reasons, including the ones that are officially declared. And um, we ended up – uh, we did a workshop at at Lincoln Center uh, the summer before last that turned out really well with a lot of the cast that was in it. Prior to that, I, we did a severe cutting and turned it into – Well, I was going to say you've very blithely gone from five hours to we saw a show open that ran roughly two and a half. Yes. How did that cutting – Happen was that constant communication between you and John? Was that John working with this woman who he'd been working with at the public? She was no longer there, and um, it it was sort of like I think it was working with John and I because um, the thing which is interesting, John discovered all these incredible, phenomenal, monumental facts that he was in love with. He was in love with it, with them, and it was. I think it was very difficult, very challenging, because it was like, and you have to give away some of your children so the other children can shine. And and I think it was very, very difficult for him to do so. So I was very actively involved in 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 going. We know this, and 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 also the thing which is as frequently what happens when you write a play in the first act. Very frequently, you include information. As if there isn't an act two. Hmm. You overwrite. And then because you don't know how it's going to turn out when you're writing it. And then by the time you end up writing the act two, you then have a responsibility to go back and go, I don't need to do all of that because I have an act two to cover all of that. And th- and that's one of the things that I think that's why uh, an outsider perspective or a director's perspective or a dramaturg or whatever, whoever ends up doing that can offer, we now know this. So because we know this, we don't have to know this, this, this all the right, right away. So let me ask you about that experience in light of the fact that I think you must have had a somewhat similar experience. Experience on Angels in America Part with two. Perestroika. Yes. Perestroika, I variously heard, was five and a half to seven hours in its original reading. Well, it was five acts. I mean, I with Perestroika, I got five acts in true Tony Kushner fashion. I got five acts like two weeks before I started rehearsal. And through the course of the rehearsal process, I would say 60% of that changed. So how do you talk to a playwright and convince them that their child isn't perfect and needs needs some fixing. Well, I think it, the smarter and more experienced the playwright, the more you don't have to convince them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, I mean, with, with Tony and John, they're both incredibly seasoned, very smart playwrights. And so they're, they're involved. And if they, tr- the, the, the thing you have to do is you have to establish trust and command. 
and they have to trust you and they have to and they trust you because they believe that you know what you're doing and that you're bringing a perspective that's very valuable to them. And so I, 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 I was able I was able to have that relationship with them uh, as, as a director and as a collaborator. I suppose it's probably the easiest words to claim. And so and so you become their sounding board. You become, in essence, their ideal audience. I think one of the responsibilities of of a director particularly is that you are the ideal audience because they don't have the audience yet. And once once they have an audience, then how that audience is responding, how the information they're receiving becomes clear. But up to that important time, you are the ideal audience. You are you are you are in essence sharing back with them information that you are receiving as an audience. You're not saying this is my aesthetic. You are saying, this is clear to me. This isn't clear to me. I'm confused here. What about this? You're missing a moment. You're missing this. I remember at one point when, when I was working with Susan Lloyd Parks on Top Dog Underdog, it was Jeffrey and Don Cheadle, and we were all sitting around the table. And I remember one point I'm going like, I feel like there's an event that's missing here. You start this thing right here, and it's really interesting, but I need more information here. And I'm not speaking, when I'm doing that, I'm not speaking from my aesthetic. I'm speaking from my removing all sort of territorial claims on the material and responding, like I say, as an ideal audience person. But can you do that since you are a playwright yourself? Doesn't to some degree, I mean, does it give you extra insight or does it become frustrating at times because you know what you would do? No, because it's not, because I'm not interested in projecting myself onto somebody else's work. That's, that's, there are times when I've done that. There are times when I've done that. But when I've done that, it's because something was missing on the other end. But I think what I bring, if I, what I bring as a playwright is an understanding of rhythm, is an understanding of storytelling, is an understanding of character. So I'm undoubtedly bringing those tools, but I'm not saying this is how I would do it. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you do a musical, it's a little bit different because in, in, when you're doing a musical – there is a there. There has to be a dominant aesthetic. Mm. There has to be a dominant aesthetic because there's so many different people involved. So, so when you're doing a musical, you're definitely bringing a sense of authorship. You said that Tony handed you the lengthy Perestroika two weeks before rehearsal. Where was Free Man of Color as you went into rehearsal? I, Had I, the majority of the cuts been made? Well, when we went into the workshop, a lot of the when we went into the workshop, a lot of the cuts had been made because we had two weeks, and I said we can't use the two weeks to discover. We've got to really shape it. And the first week, and so we made made a very bold cutting on Act One and Act Two, and then we spent the first week just seeing, hearing it in the actors' mouths. What was necessary? What was unnecessary? What was necessary? What was unnecessary? And then I spent the last week in, in, enlivening it with the actors, and then when we went into rehearsal. So this time it was like once you start to move it in space, once you start to move it in space, then it becomes clear what's working, what isn't working, what needs to be clarified, what isn't. And so it's, it's just levels of levels. And every single time you add another level, every single time you move it in space, then a whole series of secrets are revealed. Every single time you have a run through of half the act, secrets are revealed. Every single time you run a whole act, secrets are revealed. Every, then you, when you go into tech and you start lighting it. Secrets are revealed and, and, and you have to, it's very important that you don't, you don't fall in love. It's very important that you remain as much as you possibly can a clean, disciplined parent who is looking at the, who is perpetually looking at the child and going, that's not clear. No, more food here. The hair is too long here. 
that that that's not clear. You have to you have your job as a playwright is to is to one of your jobs because there's twenty seven thousand jobs that you have as a playwright. But one of your jobs as a playwright is to perpetually bring a clean set of eyes and a clean set of emotions every single time you work on the play, and that's challenging because because it's so easy to surrender and so easy to become a cheerleader. But that's not your job. It's often said of plays from 20s and 30s, they'll never get done again. Look at how huge they are. Nobody's going to do a show with that many characters and you can't double it. Do you believe there's future life for free man of color? Was there ever a temptation given your producer's hat and your producer's experience to say, you know, if we could figure out how to, how to trim some people out of this, it's going to get seen more? No, you're not – it's – when you're doing the play, you're, the the playwright gives you a play, and if you make a commitment to the play, you make a commitment to do the play. Period. That's it. You make a commitment to the play, and that's the play you're going to do. And it's and it's 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 not your responsibility to be agent or 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 booking agent. It's that's not your job. Your job is to is to try to bring that play to life, and 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 you can't contaminate it with concern about future productions. You that's not your job. And uh, that's somebody else's job and somebody else needs to do that job. And when you're directing a play, you have enough to do, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, thinking about what's going to happen four years from now as arena stage going to do it is a luxury. Hmm. Got it. Tell me, growing up in uh, in Kentucky, where did theater come into your life? Um, I don't know. All I do know is. From as early as I can remember it being an obsession. I mean, I remember, and it was always in some strange way directing. I mean, people told, I mean, I went, they, some people did, they did a documentary on me and we went back to my hometown and there was some event that was going on. And my cousins told me that when everybody would play house, I would give them lines to say. Hmm. I was, I was never, I was never in it. (laughs) <laughs> I was I was I would I would assign people roles. I remember when I was five years old and we were supposed to have nap time. There was this one girl and I would and I remember acting out. I remember staging her in Sleeping Beauty and saying, this is what you're going to do. And this is what, I mean, it was just it was always I was I was always making the story happen. I wasn't in the story. I was making the story happen. And it was and it was always it was always staging. I, and it was always staging events. Uh, I went to this. um school called Rosenwald Laboratory School, which was kind of like a private black school. And at the end of the year, there'll be this giant play and the principal and there'll be, everybody would be involved. And, and I would, it was like, I lived for that time. And I remember I was probably babes in Toyland or something that was being staged. And I remember her staging a moment where two, two boys were sitting on a, on a bench and she had them like sort of roughhousing with one another. And I remember studying it, and I remember going, "Oh, that's be." Part of my brain, without the language, going, "Went, oh, that's behavior to make the situation seem real." I mean, it was it was very interesting because I think I was I was in it, but I was the observer. I remember at one point, and I frequently have used mask in my work. At one point, I was in some sequence where I was playing Alice in Wonderland. I was the dormouse. 
And on the opening night, they put this mask on my head. And I was like six. And I cried through the entire performance because I was horrified that this mask was on my face. But it's like theater was my obsession. Walt Disney was my obsession. And I don't know where it came from. I would watch episodes on TV of the Dick Van Dyke show because it was in New York. I would watch episodes of That Girl because she was an actress in New York and she lives in Brewster and Dick Van Dyke lived in New Rochelle. So it was always about coming to New York from the time I was seven, eight years old. Well, if that's true, then you first went to Kentucky State, but you transferred to Pomona. That's yes. where you got your yes. undergraduate yeah. degree. What did you get your undergraduate in? In theater. In, I, I, so why go to California if, if, if the role models are because all was, in the suburbs because I was sick of New cold, Because I was sick of cold weather. I think <laughs> – I, got, I, think, I think I got – everybody in my family had gone to Kentucky State, which is a traditional black – southern black school. And I went there for one year. I said, I'm not doing this. And then, and then I got accepted to Northwestern, cold. Denison, cold. I think Sarah Lawrence, cold. And I got accepted to a school, California, warm. I'm going. And interestingly enough, my younger brother was – my mother was in at, at Miami University doing advanced degree work, uh, getting her doctorate. She was getting her doctorate at Miami University. And my younger brother was in a production of Oliver – and I took him to a cast party and I met this woman at the cast party. She said, oh, I go to Pomona College. And she, and she told me, said, they have a great theater program. I'm like, oh, OK, that sounds interesting. And then her mother on this campus tracked down my mother in the library, gave her the admissions office. She sent it to me and I applied and I went and that's how I ended up there. And when I was there, I started out primarily – I was going to – I was primarily an acting and a design focus. Huh. And uh, – because I was, I was set designer. I was going to be a set designer and an actor. What happened to directing? Not yet. And then well, you were doing it at age six, apparently. I was, say, but I was just not <laughs> acting in okay. acting and design. And then I didn't like drafting, so I stopped doing that. So then I focused on acting and directing. And then I did that. And then my last year there, I wrote a play. Up for grabs. Up for grabs. I got, oh, my God, he's got research. This is frightening. And, uh, and, um, and it won some American College Theater Festival regional thing. And then I was invited back to be an artist in residence. I did another play. And then from that play, I got invited to work at this place called the Inner City Cultural Center in Los Angeles, which is where I was. I mean, I was 21 and I was teaching through a CETA program, all these young kids. And I did that for about three years. And then I started to get noticed in L.A. Times and all this sort of stuff. And I got an interview to go write for a TV show. And and I went to the interview and the head writer said, oh, he's quick. We're going to have to tie one hand behind his back. And I went, I'm moving to New York. Huh. Before we go past it, what were those first plays about? What, what was on your mind that you were, you were trying to address at, at age 20, 21? Um, well, I, Up for Crabs is really a good play. I, I read it a few years ago. It was, it was a character named <laughs> – it, it was really fascinating, a character named – Joe Thomas, who had been placed, it's a little bit, what was that, what was that movie about the kid, um, uh, what's his face? You Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey played it, the some, Truman Show. Oh, mm-hmm. It was, but I wrote this 10, years 15 before. years before that. Hmm. A person was placed, this kid was placed inside of a soundproof booth. He was over, only given commercials to watch and cereal boxes to read. Hmm. And so as far as he was concerned, that was reality. And he was released 
into this game show called Up for Grabs, not realizing that it was a game show. And he went through four doors and each of these four doors thrust him into a reality and how he survived or how he didn't survive was the thrust of the piece. And it was it's very funny. It's very dark. It's political. And it's really good. Hmm. And so it was very it was very um, theatrically ambitious. It was not realistic because I really wasn't interested in realism. It was probably, you know, a little bit of Breck, a little bit of Ed Bullens, a little bit of absurdist theater. I was totally I loved uh, I, I loved game shows. And there was on the uh, Let's Make a Deal, the. Uh, the uh, the main woman who would dis who would Carol dis- Merrill Carol Merrill and so one of my characters was Merrill Carroll and it was <laughs> and 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 that was and that was that was one of the main characters and then there was another character named Baba Z who was a, who was this black revolutionary and there was so it was it was just amalgam it was it was silly and absurdist and political and dark and funny it was my aesthetic hmm. it was my aesthetic. At that time. Wow. And it came out in the first play. Yeah. So I I took your journey away from you. You came to New York. Yes. You went to NYU, came yes. right to NYU, for, and got a master's in, if I have it correctly, dramatic writing and, and musical, musical theater. theater. Sort of double. double so, but in both cases, writing-oriented. You're totally writing. And the thing which is interesting and funny but not is Kushner was at NYU at the exact same time in the directing program. <laughs> and I was there in the writing program. <laughs> so once you got through all of that training, I mean, the first show that really shows up on the map is something called Paradise. Paradise. For which you wrote the book and did the lyrics, lyrics. which got done at Playwrights Horizons. You did not direct that. I production. did not direct that. What was the experience of having your first show done in New York? It was the perfect horror story. It was the perfect horror story. Initially, it was done so it was it was developed at this musical theater program, and Ira Weitzman, who's who's been considered now, was at Playwrights Rights, which is when Andre was there, right? And so he ushered me into the building because the play was it was very very funny and very edgy and very dark, and and it ended up being done at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park when Bob Calvin was there, who was also one of the teachers, and he really loved it, and we did it there. In a production that was pretty horrible, I must say. Someone else directed it. Person's directed is no longer alive, but it was a horrible production. That's the Cincinnati version. The Cincinnati version. It was a horrible, horrible production. It was a miserable, miserable, miserable time that I had there. And uh, I remember we, it was. I was. It, it snowed, and we was. It was snow on the ground from the time we landed well, until let's the time leave we the, left. Let's leave the weather at it. Yeah. You're a, you're an author yeah. getting your first major production. Yeah. Why is it so awful? Because the, the because the director was not smart enough for the play. Okay, and then you said at playwrights, and it was also the perfect horror show. Yeah, it, it was it was horror show for very different things. Well, it was and it was a, in, in in which case we had done a series of workshops which were had been very successful and were very funny and and all of a sudden with. With the production, the aesthetic shifted, and it was it, there were these subtle moves to make it a delightful show, as opposed to this unruly thing. I remember Claudette Sutherland had always played 
who was in the original production of How to Succeed. How to Succeed. And she was played a former Miss Georgia, and she was very raspy and funny and very funny. And and all of a sudden, and she had done all these workshops, and she was really delighted. But I'm not blaming anybody, but all of a sudden, we end up casting a perfectly lovely, talented, who could probably, whose note, whose voice was more appealing than Claudette's, but was not funny. Hmm. And so there was just a whole series of artistic decisions that made that were being made, and I went along with them because I was being the good guy. Mm-hmm. I was being the nice guy. I was being the friend. And then the night of the opening, a tornado, there was a tornado threat to come through New York City. People, I mean, people like literally put tape on the windows and the whole thing. And I find myself standing on the corner of 95th and Broadway because I, I lived on 95th between West and Riverside, standing in the rain underneath an awning, howling wind, reading hateful reviews by myself. Mm. And I went, oh, if this ever happens again, it's going to be because I made mistakes. It's not because I surrendered. I surrendered to a vision that was not mine. So it was it was painful, but it was crucial. And then the thing which was, I, I mean, and they were hateful reviews. Mean, 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 mean. And 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 then eight months later, Colored Museum happens, and oh my God, phenomenal, brilliant. Where has he come from? Well, he came from eight months earlier when he got trashed, and it was just so fascinating. And on that production, which I also didn't direct, but I was in every single meeting. I was very insistent. I was driving and pushing it forward, saying, "No, that's not what I intended. No, that's not what I want." And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have have asserted myself, and I wouldn't have been as confident. And as insistent about vision, had I not had that other experience. But Colored Museum also played out of town. Now, New Brunswick is not as far yeah. out of town as yeah. Cincinnati, but you had the opportunity to work on it, it at didn't a regional change. It theater. didn't change that much at all. Really? From from, no. from there, it just no, came no. in? It came in. I added two exhibits because it's a series of exhibits. I added two exhibits when it came to New York. But fundamentally, aesthetic and sensibility-wise, and I formed a very, very close collaboration with, with Lee Richardson, the director, very close. And I, I was very, I was, I was a very present, a very present, very um, aggressive playwright. Hmm. Are you someone who gets it down the way you want the first time, or are you an inveterate rewriter? Um, I rewrite a lot before... I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, uh, before I even show it to anybody because I really want to make sure, and it's only gotten worse because I think the clearer you are, the less clear you are, the more the more you have to engage in potentially not smart conversations. Mm-hmm. The more clear you are, it, it can elevate the, com- the level of conversation of the collaboration. If you're vague about your material, then you're making yourself vulnerable to people's not correct aesthetic. The more evolved the vision is, the more evolved the writing is, then generally it tends to lead to a much more sophisticated conversation, which will then make the work be better. So I don't hand something in until I feel it go, until I've exhausted my smarts. So you've now had a great success with mm-hmm. Colored Museum, which went on to – Many productions went to London to know, the Royal Court. All and these, all the, yeah, the, exactly. this huge success. But as you said, you were not directing it. When did your five-year-old self reassert 
uh, himself because the next major show is Spunk yeah. and you are directing. I'm the director. Yeah. What what flicked the switch in your mind considering your training had not been as director? Um, but my training in college was. I see. So, no, it was just it, – it was – Color Museum was a halfway house. Color Museum <laughs> was a halfway house. It was – it was – it was – it was – Oh, no, the set, the set, so all the walls are white. No, it was very much so. It was me as as writer being very um, being very vocal about the aesthetic that was informing the writing. And fortunately, I had a very receptive director. And then so Spunk, I then went out to the taper, and they had this thing called a literary cabaret and they asked me if I wanted to do something. I said, well, there are these three stories of Zerona Hurston that I should that I was wanting to do. So I did them just as a Reader's Theater. I think it was Loretta Devine did one of them, a couple other people. And we did this thing. I did this thing, which is people on music stands. We got this rave review in the, in the L.A. Times. And they wanted to move it as a Reader's Theater thing to some little theater. Hmm. And people were – it was huge, just huge little hit. And I said, no, I want to figure out how to stage it. And so – and because I want to try to figure out another way of, of staging it. And so that's – and so I did a workshop there and then it ended up back at Crossroads and then ended up back at the public. So it sort of – the, the taper, Crossroads and the public sort of became my – like a, and that was significant breeding ground because I wanted, I wanted to evolve a, a, a storytelling aesthetic, which I had not played with yet. You didn't have a vast catalog of plays that you'd written at the point at which you became your own director. And yep. there are some people who wonder whether young playwrights don't benefit from the collaborative nature of a relationship between a director mm-hmm. and playwright having that other set of eyes. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you, you had a vision of what you wanted to see on stage. Are there people you look to even now – to give you those extra set of eyes or are you just – you have your vision and even when you write it, you know what you're going to do? If you cast it correctly, you have an incredible set of eyes with smart actors. You have really great designers. You have another set of smart eyes. And then ultimately you have the ultimate set of smart eyes, which is the audience as a whole. If an audience person comes up to me and says, this is what I think, I will go, I'm not interested because I'm not interested in what each individual audience says because it's their own aesthetic. But the audience as a block is right. Hmm. The audience as a block is absolute. You absolute. If they're unclear, it's unclear. If one person's unclear, I don't care. That Then you're ne- negotiating a relationship with their aesthetic. But as the audience, as a whole, they are gospel. And you can tell when the work is clearer when it isn't, particularly on a musical, but on any piece. You can tell when they're there and when they aren't. So I – and also that's why it's going back to the writing. I push it and push it and push it and push it as much as I possibly can before it even gets to that stage. I want to exhaust. There's a tendency when you write because it's, you're so, it's so lonely and, it, and you can be wrecked with insecurity and fear and the need and you just need somebody to say, good boy, oh my God, this is so wonderful. You have to really avoid the desire for the cheap applause because the, the desire is very real. Acting on it is simplistic and foolish. You have to live, you have to work through the insecurity and keep working and working and working on the material and get the material to the level that you want it is before you begin to share it. Because a whole lot of people are going to be working very, very, very hard to embody it. So you've got to make sure that you've layered in as much stuff as you possibly can. And you should not use 
the actors or the designer or even the director to complete your work. You should really work really, really hard. So when you're giving them something, it's worthy of the deep emotional investment they're going to make. So Jelly's Last Jam, was that a project that you conceived or a project you were brought on to? Well, after Colored Museum, I got offered The Planet. I got offered 9,000 movies. I got uh, I got offered everything. I, in the movies, if it had anything that had one black person in it, I got offered every single movie for about three or four years. I said I'm a no to almost every single thing because I just wasn't interested. And I got and, – and also I went from a situation where I was starving to all of a sudden everybody saying yes, 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 yes. So I said yes to all these possibilities and through the course of of a year or two, most of the crap died because it wasn't right for me. And Jelly was one of those few things that didn't die. Well, but it was an idea that someone came, came to, to you, you with, yes. said, yeah. we have the rights yeah. to Jelly Roll yeah. Morton's Pam music. Pam Cosmo and Margot Lyon, and they said, doom. And I was hired to be the writer of it. That was going to be the Jerry next question. Jerry Zachs was the original director. Huh. Jerry Zachs was the original. August was the original writer. August Wilson. August Wilson was the original writer, and then that didn't work out. And then so after Color Museum, I got offered it. And when I got offered it, Jerry Zachs was attached to the project. As a director, mm-hmm. Jerry then left the project to go direct Miss Saigon, which he never ended up directing. <laughs> so that was, and but by this time, I had directed Spunk, and that's when Susan Burkett, who was the lyricist, kept on telling telling Margot he needs to direct, he needs to direct, he needs to direct it. And then when Spunk happens, I was then offered the job to direct it. But they tried every single other director. I mean, every I can name you all kinds of directors who were who were invited into the process. And then ultimately ended up with me directing it. The concept of Jelly's Last Jam was certainly not that of a conventional musical yeah. comedy. And I don't know what Pam and Margot might have had in mind, yeah. you know, other than this music. So how much was it you literally creating what it would become with that source material, or was there much as you gave to John Guare, some concept that you were going to Oh, it's very, very specifically a concept. Yeah, very much so. I mean, my original concept was, my original first entree into the world is Jelly Roll Morton is trying to put on a review and his adversary shows up with book scenes. That was my original concept. Mm-hmm. That Jelly Roll Morton is trying to put on an all-black review that celebrates him. And then his adversary at the time was Anita, his girlfriend, was showed up with book scenes that contained the truth. Hmm. And then at one point, uh, when I had the first act of it, Pam and Margot and I had a meeting with Joe Papp. And at the very end of it, this character named The Chimney Man shows up. And Joe was sitting there and he was being very authoritative, being very Joe. And he said, this is interesting. This isn't interesting. What's this is? What's this here? And then at one point he said, and that Chimney Man character, he's kind of interesting. And that was it. And the, nothing came from it. And then about two months later, I finished more work. And by that time, I went, I said, Joe, you know, remember you said, talked to that thing about the Chimney Man character? I said, he's now my other main character. He said, well, you, well, do you want to know why? <laughs> oh, he already knew. <laughs> I said, I said I, once again, I said, why, Joe? He said, because you hadn't found you in the story. And he was right. And the Chimney Man character became the character who wanted to say the things that I wanted to say about the piece. And so it evolved from there. And we worked, Susan and I, and then later, Luther Henderson, Eddie, and we worked for a very long time on that project. Did you see yourself as Jelly Roll Morton's adversary? I, I, I saw myself as 
I was I was very intrigued by Jelly Roll Morton calling himself the inventor of jazz. That's kind of like somebody saying I invented music. <laughs> Nobody in, he notated music. He he was he was one of the first people to notate jazz. But you, you can't claim to have invented an art form that came from a collective energy. It's that's not possible. So I was I was just why I was intrigued by. So I didn't I wasn't. I was in, he became an, and also going back to the musical theater program, one of the things which I hated about being in that program is they would always go, is the character likable? Is the character likable? Is the character likable? And I, my contention was a character doesn't have to be likable. He has to be human. So I was interested in working a character that you didn't necessarily like, but by the time the piece was over, you had fallen in love with his humanity because he had found it himself. And that's what I was interested in very much so in exploring. And I love and, – and the thing which I loved about Jelly Roll Morton, particularly from listening to his Library of Congress tapes, he was so incredible. He was so American even though he was Creole. He was so American. He was as American as Henry Ford. He was American as, as, all, as these characters who go, I am now going to do something that nobody else has done and everybody's going to applaud me because I'm extraordinary. And I loved that arrogance and I loved that confidence and I thought that was a brilliant energy to have in the middle of a show. And then have another character going, oh, no, no, you're going to be brought down. The idea that a character has to be likable may have been the source at least of the – some reported conflicts at the time between you and Gregory Hines who was playing the role. Yeah, yeah. The idea that, that – Gregory wanted to be a musical comedy star yeah. and you were not writing a musical comedy so, vehicle. But I but go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say you have the writer and then there's you as the director yeah. who has to work with an actor yeah. to make it work and you're in both places. Yeah. How did you resolve that or how did you come to terms with that or get him to come to terms with well, that? Well, it was it was a very it was a very it was a very violent collaboration. Mm -hmm. It was a emotionally Violent collaboration. And perhaps even more difficult because one of your producers, Pam Coslow, was his wife. So yeah, but Gregory didn't need backup. <laughs> okay. Gregory didn't need backup in many respects. I didn't, and then I did. There was a power dynamic that was going on between Gregory and I, which was just based on us being two men. Then there was a power dynamic which was based on my aesthetic versus his. And the thing which was became very challenging is what I used to always know is that Gregory was brilliantly showbiz savvy. So if he was complaining about something, his solution wasn't, wouldn't necessarily be of the aesthetic of the show. But the fact that there was a problem was correct. Hmm. So I had to learn. So you learn very early on in collaboration, which is the way I was talking about, is, is I – most of my friends, I don't like friends. I don't, most, my personal friends are not shy, retiring people. I'm aggressive personality. I mean, I like, I like, I like assertive people. So I don't shy away from conflict at all. I don't shy away from people who have a very strong opinion because I also have a very strong opinion. And in the conversation or even in the collision, something better is going to emerge. So Gregory's, Gregory's instincts about weren't right. What wasn't right was right. His solution, I knew it, the solution had to come from me, but the instinct for, that he was bringing to the event was very, very correct. And so, and also, up to this point in time, which I was operating from, Gregory had never done a show. 
he had done reviews. He had not done, he had not done in terms of a musical, a character that started with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, the closest he came to kind of was coming uptown, which was a Scrooge story. Right. But come on. You know what I mean? So it had been Yubi, brilliant, dazzling performer, perfectly capable of doing the material. And so through this collaboration, the best of his showbiz and the best of my substance collided and I think resulted in a really, really thrilling show. It was a – was it easy? Was it was it free? No. But at the end of it, you know, he ended up giving – I, I can end up I can say with confidence he ended up giving a performance that he could not have given without me and the sh- and the show ended up glistening in a way that I could not have done without him or Susan Birkenhead or Luther Henderson it was very much it was very much so my vision my vision but it was a vision that was informed and enhanced by the intensity and the and the passion and the brilliance of my of the people that I was working with. Angels in America, which came next, show that had been developed out on the West Coast, the Eureka Theater, it was done. Uh, the first part was fully staged in London, fully staged at the taper. There had been readings and presentations of Perestroika. In- there was a full staging of Perestroika at the, at the taper. Oh, there was. Yes. Okay. But when it came to New York, the directors who had done those shows were not – in the running. Yeah. How did you come to direct that show? I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. I remember the first thing I, I remember I saw it in LA. I went, oh, this is gonna be this is gonna win the Pulitzer. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. And then that was there. Because I met Tony earlier when I was working on Jelly at the Taper, which also had an incarnation there. And we were talking about this project, Henry Box Brown, which we were going to do later, which has never happened, maybe one day will. And Richard Kornberg called me up. One time, the publicist, the publicist who was at the public at the time, and he went, "There's a rumor going around you're going to direct Angels." I went, "Really? I've never heard any of this." And then a day or so later, I think it was Jack Vertel called up, called me up, and said, "Tony uh, Krishna wants to come talk to you about his play Angel in America." I went, "Okay." And I'd never read it, but I'd seen it. And so and, – and, and various people and, – and I think there was Margot Lyon. I think Joyce Cate. Tony's agent. Yeah, I think a number of people had recommended me mm-hmm. for this job. I knew nothing of this. So Tony came over to my place. I was living on – still on 95th Street at the time. And I talked to him. I'd never read the play, but I talked to him because I'd seen it about the characters and what I saw – and uh, for, I guess for about an hour and a half and a day or so later, a couple of days later, word got back. He wants you to do it. I mean it was literally – it dropped in from nowhere and oh, wow. Many people won't remember that you did Millennium Approaches, the first part and that was staged, produced – Opened, yeah, and then you went back yes. to work on Perestroika. Yes. That must be an unusual circumstance in terms of you've got a show up and running; it is acclaimed. Yeah, you're taking the cast who are doing that show every night, or at least a number of nights a week, because it had to make the money. Yeah. And you're going into work on more of the play. I, I, what I, was that period like? I think it was really. I, I think it was really. 
I think it was more. It was really difficult for the actors mm-hmm. because it's if if you're in rep, if you're doing Shaw in the evening and rehearsing Chekhov in the afternoon, it's completely different characters. So when you when you perform, you have to be in command of everything. When you rehearse, you have to be vulnerable to everything. And so to have to be in command as Lewis at night and to be completely an open book as Lewis during the day or Harper or Pryor is, I think, emotionally and psychologically challenging. Plus, the script was changing a lot. So I think a lot, I would say probably 45% of my energy was spent reassuring actors, reassuring Tony because he was feeling all this pressure. And I was just going, you got to do what you got to do. Don't worry. Don't let anybody else drive you crazy. Just we will get there. We will get there. We will get there. And and that was – and also in in part one, aside from directing and staging and building performances with the actors, my main job was to keep the hype out of the room. In part two, my main job was to keep the internal anxiety out of the room and and to, and to let it evolve as it needed to, which is as a play because you can't – play an expectation nor can you play an anxiety and and part one would have been contaminated if we had surrendered to the expectations and part two would have died if we had let the anxiety and there was the producers were full of anxiety the actors were full of their own internal anxiety tony had a certain anxiety because of the producers and and it was so easy for that to happen and i went no now we're doing this now we're doing this now we're doing this now we're in now we're in tech Hurry up and perform. We're not ready. We canceled a lot. We're about two weeks of previews. The producers were going crazy. It, but it's what was necessary to make the work work. As you talk about not bringing other stuff into the room so you can focus on the work, is this not the same period at which you were approached to become the artistic director of oh, the public theater? Yeah, yeah. So, so what's going on in your head? I mean, first of all, had you aspired to run a theater? Well, interestingly enough, after Jelly – I went, this crap is hard. Getting a show on Broadway is hell. And actually, interestingly enough, I had had a conversation with Rocco Lensman, Drew Jamson, about creating, in essence, a development deal mm-hmm. like they have in movies, whereas I, as a kind of producer, would nurture work. Because I went, oh, I have the muscle. I know how to survive this. I know tons of artists who are really gifted, but they don't have those muscles. It's not that they should. I just, I, I know I'm a... I'm ferocious. I'm ferocious. I will, I will protect the work and make sure it happens. A lot of artists don't, don't have that skills, nor should they have them. So I was interested in doing that. Then at the middle of it, there was a Black Arts Festival in Atlanta that offered me to come run, to run a thing down there. And I was going, oh, okay. So already I was thinking about nurturing and cultivating work. And then in the middle of that, I remember when I flew out, I, when I flew out with Robin Wagner, the set designer, to go see the full part one and two of, uh, of angels on the way, he said, have you ever thought about running a theater? I said, well, one day I really want to do that one day. And then, um, and then sort of we're in angels in America land. I'm in rehearsal. I'm working on that. And my lawyer gets a call and says, though, they want to talk to you about the public. I said, I'm doing a seven hour play. Can they come back? And they said, no, they insisted. So in the middle of this, I'm having conversations. And I was just like going, What's going on? What is going on? But once again, I have to stay calm because I have to stay calm for the play. Hmm. So once you finished Angels. Part one. Part one. So 
when did you accept the job? Was Perestroika still – were you still working on Perestroika? No, I, accept, I accepted the job the third or fourth week of rehearsal on Angels. It was announced. Wow. Of part one. So you've got Perestroika going on. You've got a theater that you've got to start thinking about how I'm going to run it. What's it going to mean to run it? What do I want this theater to be? Unbelievable. The day the day after the Tony Awards – I, I was down at the public. Hmm. I was down at the public in that in that office. There's no way to in our time to encapsulate everything that you did at the public. I want to ask you about a comment you made, which is that producing has empowered me as an artist in a specific way. How did producing empower you? Because you've been a writer, you've been a director, now you are also responsible for choosing and fostering the work of other artists. When, when I was growing up in Frankfort, Kentucky, for the first five or six years of my life, it was a segregated town. And so it was made very clear to me that I had to be the bright, charming, articulate person who got into rooms that heretofore were not allowed for people of color I was supposed to go in, be charming, be bright, be delightful, and then open up the doors and the windows so that, therefore, other people could get into the room. That was a, that was a doctrine. You will get into the room, and therefore, you will charm and dazzle the room, and then you will open up the doors. Well, all of a sudden, I'm in the room on Broadway, and then my thought process is, how do I open up the doors? In this case, it's not specifically about race. It's just about for other artists. And so my time at the public was about creating structures so that really interesting, wonderful, fascinating actors and primarily writers, because at the end of the day, I think I consider the public theater writers there. How do I, how do I get as many different writers into the room so they can learn and cultivate the muscles that they need to have as artists so their work can survive? I, I, I place less of a responsibility. I place less of a responsibility on creating hits and more so on creating a space where artists could grow. I took it upon my responsibility, and I took it as a responsibility and a burden, not as an indulgence, but as a burden. Okay, let me create the work that artists can go, oh, yay, 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 and let me create a room where people can grow and discover and, 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 and do this thing. So it was my time in many respects to be a parent. Hmm. It was my time to be a parent. It was my time to still work and hustle and try to bring in the money so that other artists can grow. But you can be a parent as a creative artist in the sense that you create the works of art and they are your children. You can be a parent in the sense of mentoring yeah. or fostering the work of other artists. Did those two things at times become at odds? Did you have time to do both? No. Did your personal no. I artistic stopped being an artist. I stopped I stopped I'm an artist, so I feel like if I set a table, my aesthetic is going to be involved. But no, I, I stopped. I primarily I stopped. I stopped being a writer. I stopped being a writer, and and I consider writing an art. I consider directing. You a conceived craft. noise funk in yeah. this period, but I, you and you did write the book for, for Wild Party, Party in this yes. period. Yeah, but they I, they're craft jobs. I mean, I think it was. I think noise funk was an incredibly smart, invigorating. Interesting piece, but to me, it was a, it was about using my smarts to create a visceral experience. It wasn't it wasn't about sitting in my room at, on 95th Street and creating the Colored Museum. 
It wasn't about going around the country at three or four different theaters and building growing spunk. It was about every single thing I did had an end goal. It wasn't about the journey. It was about the end goal. And 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 I think when when you're an artist, you 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 luxuriate inside of the discovery. When you're when you're producing, it's not about the discovery. It's about the end result. It's about creating. In re- oh, this show, Savian's a really brilliant artist. He needs to work here. Oh, he trusts me. Let me bring into a ser- series of room a bunch of people and let's create this show. Oh, oh. Uh, uh, Nilo Cruz has this play called Dancing on Her Knees. It opens up. It gets not great reviews. Let's do his next play. You know, uh, I forget the name of it. Something in the Two Sisters. That happens there. Oh, Lee F. Schreiber plays a small role in my production of The Tempest. Oh, Andre Saban comes back and he does Cymbeline. Oh, this, he needs to do Hamlet. Come, Lee F., do Hamlet. You, it's just making an investment. And so my job, you making it Susan Laurie's first play, America play, half the audience laughed, half the party, half the audience stayed and cheered on. Oh, cut to by the time I left, you know, Top Dog Gun a Dog wins a Pulitzer. And so you make, you're making investment in people. And in many respects, you're training an audience and you're training in some respects critics on people on how to watch this new work. Yes, go ahead. I want to ask you about a very particular artist that you have an ongoing relationship with. We very often hear about playwrights and directors who have ongoing partnerships. You have an ongoing partnership with Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. What is it about Jeffrey that has made you choose to work with him? You know, we've got Angels, the Neil LeBute play, This Is How It Goes, Top Dog, Free Man of Color most recently. What has that relationship become for you and what do you think it's become for him i don't i mean we're very we're 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 very close friends we are frequently combative collaborators that words come up a lot today yeah yeah yeah. um because i'm I'm drawn to i'm very drawn to strong-willed people i mean i think he's a very very i think he's a very i think he's a very unique and very gifted artist and so I think he has a skill set that's really wonderful. I think he has a skill set that, that I think he can do very contemporary work and do classical work. Um, I think that he's just a, he's, I think he's a smart actor and I, and I love, I love smart actors. Do you find yourself thinking of projects you would like to do specifically with him? No. John Guare, John Guare's version of how Free Man of Color happened is that I said to him, let's create a project from Jeffrey Wright. I never said that. Hmm. I never did. But that's John's version of it. It was like, let's do this play about this idea. And then one day John showed up and he said to me, I'm writing this role for Jeffrey. Hmm. So Angels was the first time we worked together. Then and then we sort I we didn't do it deal with to have anything to do with each other for a while. And then Noise Funk was the next thing. And then he did a couple of plays. He did uh, a Lear, which was a terrible Lear, at the public, and then he did a Julius Caesar. He's quite wonderful. And then he hated the Neil. He hated the Neil Abute play. And then we did, did you know, we did uh, Like I Want to Blues, the HBO movie together. Right. So it's, I don't think there's any, it's not like I wake up in the morning and go, ooh, ooh, how can I do it? work with Jeffrey again? I just think it just keeps happening because it doesn't seem that way, but it's, it's kind of arbitrary in some strange way. Hmm. I'm obviously, as I said before, Forced to skip over a bunch of things, but I have to ask you about Carolina Change yeah. because it's a personal favorite of mine. Um, it was 
not unlike what you said about Jelly, it certainly was not conventional musical yeah. comedy yeah. by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Um, how did you approach that show, which was sort of a mix between being a play with music, a musical, maybe an opera? How did you find the style for that that enormously interesting piece of theater? Well, I, th- well, I mean, I think when Tony first gave it to me as a libretto, and because originally it was going to be for San Francisco Opera. And I read it and I said, oh, okay, let's do this. And then he was working on the musical Don Juan DeMarco. And he had met <laughs> Janine Tesori. And then he went, oh, we, I have this great connection with her. And then, so the, the public commissioned her, gave her a chunk of money so she could write. And she wrote Act One. And they would come in and periodically play stuff for me and I'd give them notes. And then they'd go away and change or fix stuff. And then that's – and then we did that all through Act 1. And then once Act 1 was done, we did a reading with this great cast with Tanya and a bunch of people who ended up being a part of it. Who were, And we did that. And then – so then she went away, did Act 2, same thing. They bring in material. I respond. And then we came back and we did uh, – and this – mind you, in the workshop, we just ended up just singing Act 1 and Act 2. And we – and some and, – and we'd read a scene as a scene, and then we'd go back and we'd sing it. And I go, well, what if we didn't sp- sing this? What if we spoke this? And we would just kept on. It was so. It was done in a very organic way. In many respects, the way that I worked on Spunk. What if we try this? What if we try this? What if we try this? And so it was. The, so the discovery process was very organic. The thing which was very interesting to me, the one thing that I remember above anything else. The first lines, nothing ever happened underground in Louisiana because there ain't no underground in Louisiana. There's only underwater. The washing machine saying that. Hmm. And I couldn't stage the scene. I couldn't stage it. I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. And I was just because I was an actor. So in many respects, I go through material beat by beat by beat. I knew every single thing that followed. I could not stage that first scene. And then I went and I said, I remember one time saying to Tony, I said, I can't do this. I said, you meet Dorothy before you meet the munchkins. Right now we're meeting the munchkins. We're meeting a singing washing machine before we meet Caroline at change. And he just went, do you want to just reverse it? I said, if Caroline sings it, I get it. The washing machine sings it first. I don't get it. So he said, okay, well, let's just switch it. He switched it and instantly I knew how to do the scene. Hmm. I instantly knew how to do it. See, you've got to meet the reality before you meet the fantasy. And instantly I knew how to do it. And it was just sort of that kind of discovery process. And then just finding just coming up with it with a and I always try to find an invisible what I call, like to call the invisible play that the play that you direct that the audience doesn't necessarily know but it's there in spunk i remember the first scene which was called sweat this man was abusive to his wife and i went oh once upon a time when they were a young couple they had a sex life that sex life is gone and there's contempt but there's still the need for me to physically have an impact on this other person. And so so that was the that I staged it. Nobody would get it, but that was the desire, the desire to have a physical connection, even though there is no longer any physical desire or an intimacy desire there. And so with Carolina Change, I went, okay, there's a swamp out back. And so I said, oh, what happens is the ghost of slaves invade this house because there's an imbalance. There's an emotional, psychological, spiritual imbalance. They invade this house and they push certain dynamics to take place 
And then once those dynamics have been healed, they move on. And so that was the way that I conceived of the radio, how it would be the silhouettes of each of these, each of these people, the silhouette of the washing machine is sort of based on the silhouette of, of a character from Condomble, which is, which is a Brazilian manifestation of Santeria. And then, and then the radio, if you, if radio, we found this old fabulous like fifties radio and, and the, and it was like this gold color and then it would ombre up into this other color and then they on their arms would be these huge large wrists bands which were just shackles to me it's very subtle we started there and then the character of the dryer became this gut bucket blues singer and his and in a sweaty juke joint and just if so it just became up how do you manifest how do you come up with a visual visual manifestation which is very subtle nobody in the audience harry and mars didn't go oh my god they're slaves they wouldn't pick up on that but it just became a, a a way to embody and to give a sense of for lack of better words magic realism to this fundamental realistic story when you run an institution for 12 years you do with all the pressures surrounding you, if there's something you really want to do, you have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. You left the public in 2004, 2005? Something like that. I right know. in there. Yeah. Do you have the same opportunities to work on stage now that you don't have the ability to be the producer of your own work? Uh, um, I would say I, – I would say I've been in recovery. <laughs> I would phrase it, I would view it from a different, I've, I've been in recovery from 12 years of putting out and putting out and putting out and putting out. And my recovery has been to become an artist again, to become a writer again. So so it's been less about, it's like I'm not screaming and jumping up and down to do another damn play. I don't, I don't need to direct. I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not screaming to Oh, let me do. I've been offered a bunch of stuff, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that I just wasn't interested in doing because I don't want to be a for hire guy. I don't want to go from project to project to project. That doesn't interest me. And I wanted to reclaim the piece of myself that I couldn't claim, which was to be a writer. Because to be a writer, you have to be completely private. You have to be isolated. And when I was at the public, I had to be public. I had to be a figurehead. I had to talk. I had to do this. I had to, I had to go out, hustle money. I had to be attacked. I got to be all those things you get to be. I got to make work happen. And I loved and hated and was exhilarated and horrified it and, and wouldn't trade one moment of it. But now I got to retreat and become a, I'm retreating and becoming a writer again, exploring film as a film director and coming back and, Free Man of Color is the first project I've directed since I directed Carolina Change at the National in London. So I don't have the screaming desire to just do a show just to do a show. You've said writer, but you've said film. Will there ever be another George C. Wolf play? There will be. There will be. There will be. I don't know when. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a couple of musicals where I'm like the auteur boy. One of them, I'm... I'm writing too. Um, there's a play that I've been working on for a long time. Um, I get offered a number of projects as a director, but I, it's, I have my get hit by a bus equation. If I'm working on a play and I walk out of a rehearsal and I get hit by a bus, am I going to be pissed off? <laughs> 
because the last thing that I worked on didn't matter. What if I'm working, if I was working on free men of color and I would walk out of Lincoln Center and the bus going, bang, and would I go, I can't believe, was this what I was working on? I would go, okay, I wish I was still alive, but my last creative effort was doing something that I think was really important and really matter. I just don't want to do a project for the sake of doing a project. Well, I think I'm going to let that be the final words of an exhilarating conversation. George C. Wolf, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of WING programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.